From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. What's it like to be in the hospital with COVID-19 for seven weeks, two and a half of them being in a coma, intubated? The doctor comes in, she's like, if we have to put a vent in you, would that be okay to save your life? And I said, what? Then gun sales have surged to historic levels since the pandemic started. Every self-home defense shotgun, we sold them all out in a day or two. I hadn't seen anything like it in my life. So what's fear got to do with it? We'll become more familiar with this risk being around us. And generally when that happens, that sense of familiarity tends to make us a little bit less afraid. Plus, there's been a backyard chicken boom in the last two months. Find out why all the excitement with the chicken chick, Kathy Shea Mormino. Finally, words of gratitude from a 10-year-old Windsor resident. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. After the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. A few weeks ago on this show, you heard how Gaylord Hospital is using the song Don't Stop Believin' every time they celebrate the release of a COVID-19 patient. I want you to meet one of them. After being hospitalized for seven weeks, two and a half weeks of which were spent intubated and in a coma, 42-year-old West Haven resident Anthony Spina came home last week. But a week before he was released, he spoke with me from his hospital bed at Gaylord. I asked him when he first knew something was terribly wrong with his body. It was the weekend of the 15th, my daughter's first birthday. I started feeling like a little tiny, like, eh, but I didn't know if it was allergies or not. Tuesday morning, I get up and um, I had a low-grade fever. So I called up my doctor and said, I have, you know, I have a low-grade fever. What do you want me to do? And they advised me, if it goes to 100.4 or 5, then, 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 then call us and then go get tested. And then toward Thursday, I started developing like kind of like a respiratory thing. So I didn't really know what was going on. So I called up my doctor again, and they're like, well, how's the fever? I said, the fever is still the same. So without that fever... Um, back then, they weren't going to test you, right? It was still new. The whole COVID-19 thing, they weren't going to test you. So um, I woke up Saturday morning, and I couldn't breathe. So my wife pulled up Teladoc. The Teladoc put me on the Z-Pack and uh, inhaler. It didn't do anything for me. And then Sunday morning, I went to Yale, and I had like 80% oxygen in my body to find out it was it was COVID-19 and it actually hit me on my lungs. Now I got to stop you right there. What is going through your mind? Because you are seeing, you know, the, the news, you're seeing probably stuff on social media, you're hearing so much swirling around you about this disease that so many people are stressed out about and you, what's going in your mind? So the, the virus is the worst feeling thing that I've ever dealt with in my life, right? It feels like something that progressively just kicks you harder and kicks you harder and kicks you harder down. It took me like a, like 20 minutes to walk down the stairs to get into my wife's truck to go to Yale on Sunday morning, right? Now, what kind of things are running through your head as you're taking those steps? I'm saying, I said, what the hell is going on with me? You know, I mean, I never felt this before. I never had any kind of respiratory issues at all with anything, right? You just feel like you're not like right Okay, everything is off. It was kind of scary. And then I got to the emergency room. I had like 80% oxygen. That's really, really, really bad right there, right? So I could barely even walk across the street um, to Yale. Everything is quarantined, right? So you can't 
So my wife couldn't even come into the emergency room with me. They came out fully gowned, like with headpieces on, with goggles on, with masks on. How did that make you feel? Oh, like anxiety. So I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, so they get me in the room and they give me like crazy oxygen. So they put this, this face mask on and um, they're pumping oxygen into my body. And I felt better. Like right away? Right away. Oh, yeah, right away. Like 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 there was like 10, 10 doctors and nurses that got me kind of stable. trying to pump oxygen in my body to really see what the hell was going on with me. So the doctor comes in. She's like, if we have to put a vent in you, a tube, a breathing tube, would that be okay to save your life? And I said, what? So the very last thing that I know was they put me to sleep and they put a breathing tube into my throat. And I was on it for two and a half weeks. So I actually had the breathing tube removed. It was the weekend of Palm Sunday on that Thursday. I woke up in the ICU and I was in a fog. And the first answer to the nurse was, can I see my wife? And she's like, no, honey, you can't see your wife. They everything is kind of quarantined. I remember just like it killed me because I'm saying to myself, I'm like, what the hell just happened to me, right? I lost two and a half weeks of my life. Don't ask, don't, don't ask me what day it was, right? Didn't even realize it was Palm Sunday weekend. Didn't realize Easter was coming. I lost so much time, right? I walk in like the third week of, of March and I woke up two and a half weeks later, right? It was, it was a nightmare. I couldn't pick up my arms and I couldn't even hold my iPhone in my hand because of you know, when they put you out with that medicine, it kind of messes up your muscles. And when you're sleeping for two and a half weeks like that, and you're out, like your muscles fall asleep, right? So now I'm saying to myself, okay, but what the hell is going on now? I can't move my feet. I can't move my legs. And I'm very weak. I was leaning to the left because I was sleeping and, and down for so long, your muscles fall asleep, right? Now I didn't realize that it wasn't good like this right here. So I got out of Yale and I came to Gaylord. And people are cleaning me, and I'm saying to myself, I'm like, you know, I clean my babies at home. I clean my daughter at home. Now someone's cleaning me. I'm like, this is not going to work out. I said, I'm not like that. I'm like, I'm very self-efficient, right? So, and they get me in the wheelchair. Now, that was the first time I sat up in about a month. I couldn't even feed myself at that point because I was so shaky, and my arms were so weak, right? So they sent me dinner, and then I went back into my bed. I had a, I had a good night's sleep. So first day I was in therapy. I actually got up on the bars and I actually started walking with the bars. I wasn't real good at it, but I was, I started, right? And every day I'm in like five therapies and I'm progressing and I'm progressing. Um, I'm giving myself my own, my own shower now. Um, brushing my teeth, going to the bathroom, the toilet bowl. I, you know, I'm dressing myself in the morning now for the whole day. It's actually a blessing over here because they got me, they got me back to normal. And next week is going to be my discharge date over here. What's the date? Um, it's going to be Wednesday. Next Wednesday, I think. Okay. It's going to be pretty emotional because it got me back up and I'm walking and I'm feeling better. I'm still, you know, I'm still a little rubbery. My legs and everything, my, my muscles, that'll go away probably in a few more weeks. But um, I'm definitely ready to go home, continue rehabbing and um, see my family. It's, you know, it's been a ride. Was there any point where you thought you would die? When when I heard that I had to 
in a breathing tube. I said to myself, I said, oh boy, I said, I don't know if this is good or bad. To be honest with you, I felt like such crap that I just said, screw it. If you got to put in a breathing tube for me breathe, just do it. I had no idea about the repercussions, about what was going on. And I woke up two and a half weeks later. I'm telling you right now, it feels like someone's picking you down more and more and more and more. And it just takes the energy out of you. My advice to everybody, all the listeners, everybody else, is take care of yourself and don't go around big crowds. And even if they open up the state, like wear your mask and just be easy because you're not going to want to get this thing probably in the weakest format. My biggest concern is this, is that nobody would be held accountable for this virus. I want to have somebody held accountable for the time I lost, the mental anguish for myself, you know, my wife, my children, my mother, my father, my brother. They were in the trenches. I slept and they were crying. Like, who's going to be held responsible for that right there, right? Do you think that, you know, when big, scary things happen in our in our world and in our cultures, a lot of times people feel defined by that trauma. And so do you, do you think that for the rest of your life, this will be a defining experience for you? You know, I really truly feel that I'm going to take my health much more serious. If I feel something, I'm probably going to go to the doctors probably a lot more now. I'm not going to take it for granted. Now, as far as, having in the back of my mind, you know, it'll always be there. This whole thing, they they show me, though, who's my friends, who's my foes, strangers, people that I knew that were really and truly praying for me. It's a bad thing, but it's a very humbling thing. In terms of your mental health, because you just went through a lot with your body, and that includes your brain, and you are probably going to be angry, too, that you had to go through this. And, you know, how do you hold someone or something accountable for this. And so I wonder when it comes to your mental health, do you have plans to take care of your brain? So I do have a therapist and when I get home, I'm going to Skype them probably a few times a week. And, um, you know, the whole thing doesn't bother me per se that I was put out for two and a half weeks. Right now, it might be a little different when I get home, but I accept what happened to me, you know, and if I don't, you know, move ahead that's when depression can set in, whatever it is. And I'm not going to go that route. I got a very strong support. My mental health is fine, but I am going to take care of it, you know, further. What would you like to say to the people who have been helping you out at Yale and at Gaylord? What do you need them to hear from you before you go? I'd like to say thank you to everybody. From the day I walked into the emergency room for being caring to my wife and my family, the, the level of caring nurses from ICU to the step-down program to everything, they didn't, like, lose a beat, right? When I couldn't pick up my arms, they fed me, they bathed me, um, they gave me words of encouragement, and I left out of there, right? You know, I wish everybody in America will, will get better. If they have this right now, be strong and just pray. Who do you want to play you in the movie? Ah, uh, like a movie star? Yeah. I don't know. Probably Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. <laughs> you know, I would say Tony Soprano, but uh, he's dead. He's dead, so we can't say him. No, that's but, a no but, on that. That's a negative. But, yeah, yeah, but probably someone like Joe Pesci's character. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, I, it's not a stretch <laughs> to imagine that, my friend. Not at all. That makes a lot of sense. That was Anthony Spina. I'm happy to report that on May 6th, he got his one final treatment from Gaylord Health. Don't Stop Believing played as he was wheeled out of the lobby past cheering health workers and into the arms of his family. I caught up with him this week, and he's happy to report that he's just started driving again. Up next, fear, especially during a pandemic, is a hell of a drug. It makes us stock up on toilet paper, successfully isolate ourselves, and buy a lot of guns. After the break, find out what it's been like for one gun store manager, and find out how fear can be a paralyzing agent and a powerful tool. That's us in the time of coronavirus. After the break. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kyone Wolf. In this segment, we're going to talk about guns and fear. Guns and ammo sales have set records since the pandemic started. And sure, maybe some people want long guns to hunt for food so they don't have to rely on navigating the grocery store aisles. But as you'll hear, many people are buying guns for home defense. For this episode, I reached out to over 10 gun stores in Connecticut. I told them I wanted to know what kind of changes in buying trends they were seeing since the pandemic started. Only one agreed to an interview. And that says to me that there may be some tension between gun owners and the media. I appreciate that Kyle Overturf agreed to the interview. He's the general manager of Blue Trail Range in Wallingford. Along with their shooting range, they sell guns and ammunition, and they provide all sorts of gun training and certification programs. I asked Kyle to give me a little context around what he'd seen before in terms of guns and ammo purchases and what he's seeing now. I've only been in this industry for about two years. Um, prior to that, I was actually a state game warden. I was with Connecticut's Environmental Conservation Police for 32 years. Um, the last eight years of my career, I was the colonel of the, of the agency. So I was sort of on the other side for quite a while. But I, again, I hadn't gone through uh, the issues they had after Sandy Hook with the purchasing or after 9-11. I think those are the two other big times that I know people in the industry talk about. But As in there was a rise in, yeah, in the gun rush, purchases. Yeah, the, the rush of purchases. But from around like St. Patrick's Day to the 23rd, I went through about four or five months worth of ammo in five or six days. Uh, I hadn't seen anything like it in my life. Every home defense shotgun we had, the vast majority of our, like what we would classify as either self-defense or carry uh, everyday carry pistols and handguns, they just went. I could have sold every self, uh, like uh, home defense shotgun. I've never, you know, we sold them all out in a day or two. It was, it was a little weird. It was just like this rush of things. Yeah. And that's something that I really wanted to talk about, which is there have been historically surges in gun sales after uh, mass shootings, Sandy Hook, of course, and also as a reaction to anticipated changes in gun legislation. After President Obama was elected, there was a big surge then as well. And now what you're saying, what you're seeing is completely reflected in the numbers nationwide. Uh, from March 16th to the 22nd alone, the FBI conducted 1.2 million background checks, over 210,000 on March 20th, and that's a record for the most ever in one day. This is this has been a record-setting time in the history of gun purchasing. At the same time, arrest rates are down, crime is down, but I'm I know that more goes into buying a gun than fear. There's a lot of reasons people buy guns. But 
Tell me about the role that fear is playing. I, I do think a lot of it was the fear that it wasn't there. They weren't going to be available. It's almost what goes on at the grocery store. You know, there's, you so it's this, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, a little like, bit. You get because they were kind of right. Yeah, you get this fear that um, things aren't going to become available. Because I, I don't really believe there was this real fear of I need all these guns for home protection because there's going to be you know riot, mass riots in the streets and people are going to storm our homes and things like that. I really, I think it started out as gun stores are going to close on the 23rd or you know lock down and not be able to get my the ammunition I want the firearm I want. If I don't go out and get it now, it's not going to be available again. I can, I can remember the availability, but in a week from my distributors went from no issue to gone, just gone. I hear you on the grocery store analogy completely because it's availability. If these stores are going to be shut down, you got to stock up. But And that makes sense as to why ammunition would go up. Yeah. But yeah. these these are two different things that sort of do overlap. Why why more? It was a different concern that I could see people who um, a lot of people came in looking. Uh, there were a lot of first time hand uh, firearms buyers that wanted a firearm for self defense. There was some fear involved that you know they weren't sure what's going to happen in you know a week, two weeks, three weeks, and wanted that availability for self protection. There was some concern. They didn't know how far this was going to go. I really, I really think people were concerned about it. Connecticut seems to be flattening and maybe getting a little bit better, but I think there was a time there, especially that third week in March, that people were getting very concerned. People were very concerned. I've heard people say, I don't want a gun, but I'm thinking about getting a gun. It's this weird, like, straddling of, I don't want to have to buy a gun, or I don't want to live in a world where I need to feel like I need to protect myself. Do guns, do guns make people feel safer? I think for a definite segment of the population, I think it does. Because there's a friend of mine who thought he wasn't, you know, always thought that, you know, police officers need guns and people who are well-trained should have guns. And he didn't want a gun until this started. He's like, I need to get my pistol permit. And after I get my permit, I don't know if I'm really going to want one in the house. But for the first time I've seen him start really thinking about buying a firearm and wanting a firearm in the house just in case. And there's a lot of, there should be a lot of thought process and training and you need to be very comfortable before you do that. Yeah. You put your finger on something I, I really wanted to talk about too. My brother is a really great marksman and he owns a few guns and every night before he goes to bed, he practices putting the gun together and shooting and like that sort of home defense, just that practice of being able to defend his home when his adrenaline's going and his heart is racing and, and he's not sure if it's happening or not. So he practices and he's very well trained and it's really, it's pretty cool to see. And I talked to him after everything started getting crazy with the pandemic. And he said, there's nothing that scares me more than someone who is untrained with a gun. And I, <laughs> I completely feel him on that. And so for the people who are, interested in getting a gun for self-protection because of whatever their perceived fears are about the future in this pandemic and how our society is going. How do you get well-trained and how do you stay well-trained when maybe going to a range all the time, anytime you want, may not be the option right now? What you talk about and what you're talking about your brother as far as um, muscle memory and adrenaline rush and tunnel vision and auditory exclusion and memory lapses, people can't dial 911. And when, when adrenaline, when you get an adrenaline dump, you know, anything with a fine motor skill, you're going to lose. 
you have to take that very seriously if you're going to carry a firearm every day and going to use it for self-protection. We're not doing any private instruction just because of the social distancing issues. And we're doing our pistol permit classes, the classroom portion virtually. And as soon as the, um, you know, things we feel safe with the social distancing issues, we'll start up the live fire portion again. Let's say I've never fired a gun in my life and I want a gun for home security. How would that conversation go? How would that process go in terms of background checks? Like, would I walk out that day with a firearm? What would happen? And what would we do in terms of like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing with this piece of equipment. How do we make sure I don't do something stupid? We start off with a conversation. The first thing we ask is, what do you want the firearm for? We do a lot of questioning. Are you going to carry it every day? Is this just for your home defense? Is it for target practice only? And um, then we'll start working with the firearm with you. We have a, and we have a variety of ones you can actually rent or work with one or actually go out onto the range with one of our instructors and work with that or work with three or four to see which one you like the best and help you make that decision. So the first thing we're going to ask is, is to see, make sure you have the, the proper permits in Connecticut. So Connecticut's sort of tiered. There's the uh, Connecticut pistol permit, which allows you to purchase long guns, handguns, and ammunition. Then there's a what's called a long gun eligibility certificate, which allows you to purchase a long gun, such as a shotgun or a rifle, and ammunition. Then there's something called a ammunition certificate, which allows you just to buy ammunition. So if you come in and make it easier with a pistol permit, means you've gone through a NRA or equivalent basic firearms training class, which has to include live fire. So you have had some experience with handling a firearm. So if I walked in and I was like, hi, I've never done this before. I want to buy a gun. And I don't have that just to start. You'd be like, not so much. You're not going to walk out with a gun today, but let's talk. (laughs) Absolutely. So what we'll do is we'll talk, have a discussion. Uh, We hold the NRA basic pistol classes here. And before you even uh, fire around, we teach stance and grip and sight picture and trigger control. You do some dry firing exercises. So you're very comfortable before we even put a live round in the chamber. In this area, what do you think people get wrong about the gun industry? I don't think there's enough acknowledgement for the amount of uh, safety and training and uh, good work that the people that are truly vested into this industry work at. Um, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, they have all the different programs for safe storage, uh, suicide prevention, to train firearms dealers to recognize uh, straw purchases. So firearms dealers work very hard to ensure that we're, you know, not only are people are trained, they're doing things the right way, safe and also safely. Uh, here at Blue Trail, we have a junior rifle program. Uh, one of the, at Xavier High School, where my son shot, and we had 30 freshmen try out this year, come and shoot. And they learn discipline and respect and personal responsibility for it. And it's just such a good program to teach them safety. The first thing they walk in the door is the owner. Uh, and the owner is actually, she's quite a story herself. It, it, we are, you know, we're a small, you know, female-owned business, but she was one of the top three or four shooters in the nation when in her college and after collegiate career. She's just a phenomenal shot. And she hammers those kids about safety. You know, we have nine, 10 year olds coming out for our junior rifle club. And they, and that's, they don't get to even step in the range until they go through our safety programs. I feel like it is, forgive me for using it again, but it is such a loaded topic uh, for everybody. And it may, I think everyone, I'd like to think that 
Like, you can see why people are worried about guns existing at all. And likewise, people who recognize their Second Amendment rights and how important and useful guns can be, they can also recognize why people are afraid and why people really hate and fear guns. And it's, I feel like we can still have these conversations in these gray areas that make up so much of our reality. We need to get not be afraid to talk to get our point across in a professional and courteous conversation. And I, that's why I appreciate the offer. I jumped on it when I got your email. I was like, oh, like, you know, I like to talk to reporters and get our story across. And like you said about the gray areas, it's an interesting conversation to have. Many thanks to Kyle Overturf from Blue Trail Range in Wallingford. You can find him at bluetrailrange.com. In this culture of fear caused by this pandemic, one thing people grasp at is some sense of control. It's why we might stock up on guns and toilet paper. It's why we're constantly assessing certain risks we could take or avoid. To learn more about this response, I talked with David Ropeek, a risk perception psychologist and the author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Always Match the Facts, and co-author of Risk, a practical guide for deciding what's really safe and what's really dangerous in the world around you. I asked him to talk about how he's seen our fears evolve and morph since the beginning of the pandemic's life in our country. When the risk was first showing up on our radar screen, that was the stocking up on toilet paper moment. We're not doing that anymore. Funny, interesting, right? The stocking up on toilet paper is the same as um, after 911, the, the attacks, and then the anthrax letters. We were recommended to get plastic and duct tape to seal off a room against biological and chemical attacks. I had just and forgotten about that. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and everybody said, how stupid. 90 million people. Did that's a third of America, roughly, slightly less than a third of America, and they said when they were interviewed coming out of the Home Depot, I know it's stupid, but at least it gives me something I can do. Okay, so in that first reaction to an uncertain new risk, there's the I don't know, I'm looking around, what to do. Now we have more information. It's not as though we understand this disease. We're still learning about its infectivity and its mortality and what it does to us biologically. And all that uncertainty keeps fear of it very high, very high. But we now know about social distancing and we now know about airborne versus droplets a little bit, right? And we now know that masks are mostly to keep it from spreading versus us getting it. It's commoner knowledge. And that knowledge is empowerment. So it doesn't make us less afraid of the disease, but it makes our choices about the fear more informed, more fact-based, more evidence-based. More useful. More directly relevant to staying safer than, say, toilet paper. On the other hand, there's a growing fear in a small number of people, but growing around the world, that we're losing control over our lives and our futures. And that gets us to the opening and the attempted opening. And that's, you know, let's open again. Right. So the people who want the world reopened are a tiny minority. Survey after survey after survey show that 70, 80, 90% of Americans, of Germans, of Britons, of Hong Kongans want to stay home. Do not open it up yet. 
And in fact, that's the big concern for the economy, right? We can open stores up, but if nobody wants to go to them, the store might as well be closed. So the overwhelming majority of people are still predominantly afraid of the disease. That's A, appropriate on the merits of the disease, and B, heightened by, you've got a show on Saturday mornings called in the time of COVID, right? We didn't used to have that either, right? So there's this giant media bubble it's all we're aware of, appropriately, but that magnifies the fear. It's gasoline on the fire. But to be fair, everybody is, a lot of people are saying, yeah, but I wish I could have my normal life back. That's different than open up, and that's different. I want to get my tattoo parlor and bowling and NASCAR. It's almost, in ways, sentimental. Don't get me wrong. Of course, there are people who are needing to get back to work. But in a way, that's sort of like, I wish I could hug my friend. I miss them. I miss parties. I miss this and that. That's sort of sentimental. Yeah. Sentimental is an appropriate word, but too soft, if I may. Uh, Sure. What do you suggest? There's something more profoundly important in it. We do things to give ourselves a sense of empowerment against fear of not having control. We are aware of that in all sorts of ways. So one is we don't understand the disease. I'm going to buy toilet paper, masks, guns, whatever. Another one is I don't control my life these days. Who really does? In all sorts of ways, whether we've lost jobs or our freedom or whatever, we really don't have control over our futures. So the wanting to have control over our lives more and futures and the lack of social contact now is starting to eat at the fear of the disease. So that's still high, but here comes another fear to kind of get on the seesaw with it, balance it. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are willing to stay home, but boy, you know, they wish they could go back to the playground at least or uh, have a little bit more freedom left. So that's a shift that I think is we, we're starting to see going on all around the world. I wonder at what point that fear will be used to get us out of this versus how that fear may be used to dig us in deeper. So I don't dare make this prediction as any kind of a knowledgeable, here's what's going to happen. But here is what has happened in the past in roughly similar circumstances. Roughly. This is new in a lot of ways. We'll talk about them in a minute. You remember after 911, everybody said the new normal? Oh, no, now we're in the new normal, the rage of terrorism and the TSA and security theater at the airports. And for weeks and months and years, we remained more acutely aware of another terrorist attack, where is it going to be when? As time goes on, and we see that those are rare events, awful when they happen, still a threat, but rare, we reduce the brightness of that blip on our risk radar screen. The normalcy, the familiarity, tends to take a little bit of the edge off or more than a little bit of the edge off the worry. Now, in this case, it's a disease, and it is a global disease, and it's going to spread over there and then come back here, and it's going to be around for years, short of a vaccine. And that's a year and a half away anyway. So this threat is going to be staring us in the face. And in tangible ways, I mean, people around us are going to be dying. I know people who have, knew people who have died. 
And that's going to keep the fear more acute than terrorism. So that's why the analogy isn't perfect. But over time, what has overwhelmed us as this first wave, this, oh my God, this world is shut down. There will be partial reopenings. There will be baseball again on TV, if not in the stands. There will be somewhat of a return to whatever new, the new normal is going to look like, and it will be different than before, but we'll become more familiar with this risk being around us. And generally when that happens, that sense of familiarity tends to make us a little bit less afraid. Does anything keep you up at night? My bad hip that I can't get surgery on because elective surgeries are delayed at the hospital. Um, Fear-wise, and I take your question, yeah, and, and I don't mean to sound all priestly or monk-like or whatever, but a world in which everybody's so worried is not a positive world. And all the things that come from an either negative or positive world are real. I mean, social unrest comes from a negative world, not a positive world. We're facing a lot of other problems too, climate change and so forth that are going to really test us, right? And if we're in a really negative push come to shove, I'm in it for me, not for the rest of the community, kind of a mindset because I lost my job and I'm hungry and my kids can't go to college and all that sort of stuff. To hell with the social altruism stuff. Push comes to shove, it's going to be me first, understandably, biologically, for the human who wants to survive. A negative world makes all of that worse. There's one other thing that it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's worth discussing. A worried world is a world that's going to be sicker. Worry, like we're experiencing, is biologically a fight or flight or freeze response. It's like the lion's attacking us, only it's not a lion, it's a germ. But we're being attacked. So we turn up the systems we need to protect ourselves, and we turn down the systems that we don't need, mostly to conserve energy. All of those changes, when they persist, are really bad for our health. It's chronic stress is a more familiar phrase. So here's some of the changes that are bad for us. And this will happen and did happen after 911. Persistent stress elevates our blood pressure because you need a lot of blood to fight off the lion if it's attacking. That raises your risk for cardiovascular disease, which is the number one cause of death in America. It suppresses your immune system because you don't have to worry about germs getting in you and your lion is attacking. So long term, your immune system goes down. Well, that's not great for fighting off infectious disease. More of us are going to get all kinds of infectious diseases or suffer worse from them because our immune systems are weakened. Our digestive system is interfered with, which is why there are all sorts of digestive problems when you're in chronic stress. It interferes with blood sugar and contributes to a greater rate of type 2 adult onset diabetes. It interferes with emotional hormones, stress hormones, because you're on alert, and increases the likelihood and severity of clinical depression. This country has quadrupled its suicide rate in the last 10 years. So, so there are a ton of real, profound health effects from a world that's as worried as it is that stays worried as much as it does. And just it is little, one giant self-fulfilling prophecy that yeah, just right. swallows itself whole. You're worried about getting an infectious disease. So your immune system gets depressed because you're in a worried state, which increases the likelihood 
you'll get the disease or suffer worse. Okay, David. <laughs> I'm getting stressed out. Give me, give me something to hold on to here, David. Here's something to hold on to. After this wonderful program, which is all full of all the scary news about COVID. There's some, there's some sweetness, by the way. We have a little nice. kid at the end. Yay for the little kids. That's my point. Go to the sweetness. Find the sweetness. Turn off the 24-7 Oh My god Because tonight, the information that you have is pretty much going to be the same as this morning. Turn it off. Don't be a statistical addict. Turn it off. Read a book, walk the dog, you know, do your laps around your apartment, you know, have a, a conversation with a friend out on the street six feet away with a mask on. Have your social contact. Don't be a victim of the fear. Stay informed, but just don't be a 24-7 victim is a, one of the healthiest things we can all do for ourselves right now. Well, is there anything we haven't talked about you want to make sure you say in this giant, multifaceted, kaleidoscopically complex topic? Yeah, one last thing. People are not overreacting. A lot of people like to say toilet paper and guns and all that stuff are irrational and overreacting. And on the basis of the actual evidence, you know, coronavirus being the actual risk, buying guns and toilet paper seems irrational. But risk is a feeling. Risk is not an evidence-based, fact-based, objective, just what the facts tell us thing. It's how scared or not we feel. We do things to protect ourselves that mostly work because here we are, <laughs> right? We can get in trouble by overreacting. Toilet paper won't kill us. If you're careful with your gun, it won't kill you either. So when we do things to make ourselves feel safe, it's true that it doesn't match the evidence. And in that sense of the word, it's irrational. But I, I hate the idea of saying that people are being dumb or irrational or ignorant. No, they're just doing what we all do precautionarily to make ourselves feel safer. And we all have kind of the right to do that as long as it doesn't harm others. So kudos for people being normal, I guess. <laughs> that was David Ropeek. See more of his work at dropeik.com. As David advised, stay tuned for the well-deserved comfort segment of our show to learn about the soothing and nutritious effects of keeping backyard chickens, plus what a 10-year-old in Windsor thinks about essential workers. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Be right back. And I can't take these feelings with me So hopefully they disperse With their 14 tracks Carried out over wax Searching for resolutions Until somebody get back This is us in the time of coronavirus From Connecticut Public Radio I'm Kyone Wolf. The C segment of the show is the comfort segment And if you've ever spent a few minutes Around a couple chickens You know that it feels oddly therapeutic it's a lot like how it feels when you're staring into a bonfire. Like flames, they're hypnotic and always moving, and not like a bonfire in that these dinosaur descendants act kind of ridiculous, and they also give you eggs. At my house, we'd been planning on getting chickens for the last year, and we happened to be ready for them about two weeks ago, right as the COVID-induced backyard chicken boom happened. According to NPR, hatcheries are reporting record-setting sales, and according to the Wall Street Journal, wholesale egg prices have more than tripled as folks have been stocking up. As I've been gazing into the flickering eyeballs of our chickens, I wanted to know more about what chicken egg spurts 
are saying about these new trends. So I talked to Kathy Shea Mormino of Suffield, Connecticut. She's better known as the Chicken Chick, and she's the author of The Chicken Chick's Guide to Backyard Chickens, Simple Steps for Healthy, Happy Hens. She's got almost 800,000 people following her advice and almost daily educational live streams on Facebook. I asked her what kind of changes she's seeing in the chicken world since the pandemic hit. Certainly the interest has been peaked in keeping chickens as a result of the global pandemic and the concern about food security. I think that's a good thing that the interest has been peaked and the understanding has been um, has come home to roost, if you will, that our food comes from some place that we may not be able to reach it in a crisis. And people began looking to backyard chickeneers as a local source of food, you know, the first month of this pandemic. And so we stopped looking like the crazy chicken ladies in the neighborhood to people and started looking like smart, savvy, do-it-yourselfers. And, um, you know, maybe that's not why many of us started keeping chickens, but certainly that is um, a valid reason to keep chickens. And so I have concerns with the fact that so many people have panic purchased live animals, many people who may not have the information necessary, the best knowledge of the best practices to keep them. Probably one of my biggest concerns is that people don't understand predator proofing and how to keep the birds safe from predators. So there's a lot of little subtle things like that, that you don't get knocked over the head with when you start keeping chickens that you, you should be aware of that can really make or break your experience. What's the best case scenario for you in this strange time where people are picking up this hobby? That people are leading fuller lives and experiencing something they would not have otherwise experienced. And maybe this becomes a lifelong way of living for them. Chickens offer all sorts of benefits beyond fresh eggs, including, you know, therapy. These animals are incredibly entertaining, wildly amusing, (laughs) very relaxing to watch. And so, you know, sitting out in the backyard with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine um, becomes a great way to just sort of wind down. For those who are thinking, you know, maybe now is a really good time. I'm home all the time and it would be great to have fresh eggs and What is the first step? Now, I imagine it would be checking your town's zoning rules, yeah? Call your zoning enforcement officer. That's the person who you're going to find what is allowed. You're going going to want to know whether the type of animal is regulated, whether the gender of this animal is regulated. Maybe you can keep hens, but you can't keep roosters. Maybe you can keep six to 12. So there may be a number, there may be, there are usually offsets from property lines and from houses. So there, there are always regulations and they may be in different places in your town. So that you might want to start with an experienced chicken keeper too, to find out if they've been through it at all. It's all very municipality based and every municipality is different. And the reason for that is, is rooted in the history of an evolution of zone laws generally. If you were to do like a house call and come over to someone's 
place and they are ready to get their chickens. They've got their coop. They have a run. They have the feeder. They've got a great waterer. What what do you see in an enclosure, in a setup, and you think, yep, this will do? Some fundamentals, 101. We need a few hours here. <laughs> so <laughs> chickens have a core body temperature ranging between 104 and 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember that they're wearing down jackets on top of that all day, every day, all year long. People worry about them in the wintertime being cold. Chickens are perfectly fine in a draft-free dry chicken coop in the winter without any supplemental heat. Your chicken coop should have windows on all four sides. You need to have circulation in that chicken coop in the summertime. So I die a little death every time I see a chicken coop with a couple little slats on one side for ventilation. Ventilation is not the name of the game in chicken keeping. Circulation is, but in backyards, it's critical. Then there's the litter that needs to help you to manage waste and facilitate the cleaning of the coop. Either use pine shavings, those are the most commonly available and perfectly acceptable chicken coop litter, but I use sand. I prefer it to pine shavings a million times over. And I talk about why on my website, why it's um, ideal for use in chicken coops and how easy it is to manage chicken waste when you put a few simple systems in place with sand and basically a shelf underneath the roost. The chicken coop is really only for two purposes. One, for backyard chickens to sleep in and two, for eggs to be laid in. The food and water should be kept outside the chicken, in the chicken run, never inside the coop. It, it sounds a lot like the bottom line is like, keep it simple. Isn't that the subtitle of my book? <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact. Simple <laughs> steps. Yes, that, and I say that at the end of every live broadcast. Keep it simple. Birds are easy. I talk about in my blog, you know, there's four basic tenets of healthy chickens, and that's a nutritionally complete chicken feed, nothing else, clean water in clean containers all day, every day. There is no shortcut to clean water. And a clean, dry chicken coop, plenty of space, and good biosecurity. And biosecurity just means the whole host of things that we do to keep disease out of our chicken yard. That was the chicken chick, Kathy Shea Mormino. We had so much more to talk about, so if we've pecked your interest, you can hear our extended conversation at ctpublic.org slash us, and you can check her out at chickenchick.com. Finally, we close out our show with a kid. Kendall is 10 years old and living in Windsor. I asked her what words of hope does she have for us? We all are going to get through this pandemic. It's going to be okay. You don't need to worry. We have amazing people who are going to help cure this, and then it's going to be all over. I think we just have to stay calm and stay safe, but also not be that serious and not just imagine how workers at like grocery stores feel 
when they're touching things and other people, some people don't have masks on. It's, I feel bad for the grocery workers, the nurses, the doctors. They're in the most danger. So we shouldn't be scared for only ourselves. We should be scared for other workers also because they're doing so much to help us and make sure we're safe more than them. What would you want to say to them? I want to say thank you so much because if all those workers didn't work, then I don't think we'd have like all this food. They are working so hard. And like, I get some stores are losing money because not a lot of people are going to stores anymore. But also they should be paid more because they're putting themselves in danger to help others. Because so many of us are stressed out, humor has been a really useful tool. Do you have any jokes, please? Knock, knock. Who's there? Who? <laughs> who, who? Are you an owl or something? Very good. I always said that joke, and I thought it was so funny. <laughs> and I told it to my parents almost every day. Did they play I, along? I always, I always cracked up when I heard it. I thought it was so funny. I mean, it's not not funny. I know. (laughs) I thought it was so funny. That was 10-year-old Kendall in Windsor, Connecticut. If you know a child who has a lot to say, send them my way. Story ideas are welcome, too. You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Us in the Time of Coronavirus was produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. The theme music is called This Is the Song by Punch Brothers. You can find more information and subscribe to the podcast at ctpublic.org slash us. Till next time, stay safe, wash your hands, and may tomorrow be a better day.